I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. One that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. This is Spaces Podcast, where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello, my name is Demetrius. This is Michelle. Hey, everyone. And this is Jason. Morning. And you're listening to Spaces Podcast. Thank you for coming back, everybody. Jason, Michelle, the day has finally come. We get to uh, do an episode that Jason was really looking forward to, I know. Yeah, big Um, time. I'm looking forward to it as well. Michelle, I I don't know if you were indifferent or (laughs) somewhere in between, but today we're going to discuss 3D printing, uh, which has sort of caught fire. It's uh, super popular right now and everybody's talking about it, considering it, looking into it. From a developer's standpoint, I know there's a few projects happening right now, but in your mind, Michelle, where do you land on 3D printing? Are you guys discussing it at all? We're not discussing it at all. And personally, I just, to be honest, don't know enough about it to understand how it works on a large scale. You know, I get it on a on something that you can 3D print that sits on your desk or, you know, something of that nature. But to, to 3D print something that people are actually living within uh, is very foreign to me. And in the home building world, I, you know, I don't hear a lot of conversation about it, at least not with public home builders. Uh, uh, so I'm super excited about our guest today and hearing about what he and his company are working on. Jason, uh why are you so excited about this one? You actually, I think, brought it up first. I did um, because, you know, as we've been talking for the last couple of years or whatever, I, I think there there has to be some kind of advancement, you know, in, in the industry because we have less and less skilled labor or even just labor in general coming into our industry to be able to manufacture these homes, to build them on site or whatever it is. It's just not the direction people are going. There might be a swing at some point, but it's just not where it's headed. And it looks pretty bleak. So we've been, you know, we need to find solutions, whether it was factory built homes, you know, is the idea and being mm-hmm. shipped out to job sites or, um, you know, there's a shipping container that just, there's a lot of reuse or different ideas that are coming, but the, the concept of a 3d print where I've seen it done for car parts and so many other things. And I know they've been playing with the idea in China and stuff like that as well. It's a, I don't know if it's a solution, it's a potential solution, but I'm sure our guest will tell us how, how good of a solution that is. 
but I think it's, I think it's necessary. We have to try something else because whether I believe the economists or not, they want to continually tell you that housing is undersupplied. Yeah. Um, and if it's undersupplied, we're going the wrong direction then. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. We can't produce, we can't do those kind of things. And so I think it's such an interesting concept. And I love the idea of not being at the tip of the spear, somebody else doing it, but <laughs> most importantly, just seeing the different methods we can have, the different tech, we're so, the building industry is so far behind technologically, so far behind. I mean, you st- the, the biggest, you know, the biggest invention was still a nail gun to get efficiencies out of things. It's kind of <laughs> ridiculous, right? So we have so much technology available these days. It'll be really cool to see what can be put together to help us in those areas. Yeah. So I'm, I'm pumped. I love the idea. With that, let's go ahead and bring in our guest. Uh, he's a co-founder and head of Americas at Cobod International. That's C-O-B-O-D which stands for Construction of Buildings on Demand. Please help me welcome Philip Lund Nielsen. <laughs> Philip, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, looking forward to this. Uh, glad to have you on. Um, to start, can you talk a little bit about your role and what do you guys do? Yeah, of course. Um, so Cobot is the world's leading supplier of 3D construction printers. And a 3D construction printer, to those that don't know it, is essentially a machine that with concrete allows you to print your own home or other structure uh, that you can actually live in. So that's what we do. Um, I, we are based here in Copenhagen, where, where I'm also sitting right now. We manufacture, we develop these printers ourselves, and then we sell them all around the world, essentially. Uh, my role is I, I co-founded the company back in the days, and uh, I'm managing our operations in North and Latin America. I will actually be moving to the States uh, next year to, uh, to establish our satellite office. So very exciting, and uh, thanks a lot for having me here. There's likely someone that's just now hearing about 3D printing. In a general sense, can you explain what 3D printing a building is? Yeah, uh, I, I can try to, right? <laughs> 3D printing a home is essentially a way of, you could say, re- replacing manual labor on site of the construction site. So what you do is you have essentially, you could say, two components to this. One is that you have a printer the printer is basically what constructs the, the home itself. And then next to that, you have uh, the material supply, which feeds into the printer. You can say these two components are basically the same if you, you have a l- very large 3D construction printer like we do that can print you know, several uh, story houses. And it's similar to you know, smaller 3D printers that you can have in your household to print, let's say, an iPhone cover, right? It's still the same methodology of having some material, which is, uh, you, know, you, can, you can heat it up or you can make it fluid, and then have that go through a, a nozzle on a large or small uh, setup, which extrudes layer by layer the desired structure, the desired home, or the iPhone cover, if, if we're talking smaller scale. So that, that would say that's the, the sort of the high level uh, description. And of course, there's a lot more uh, details to it. So there's basically like an engineering or a CNC program or something that you enter all that into, right? From a computer standpoint. And then it literally goes and just tracks that. It's a program. Exactly. Okay. Ex- exactly. It's a program. So the, the way you start is essentially with, let's say you're an architect, you have your drawings on paper like you usually would. Then the guys, they come to us, we sit together with my architect department, where we then take that drawing and then we transform it into a 3D file on the computer. I have no idea how they do this, but but, uh, (laughs) our guys are super smart. And then they have that drawing transformed. You might also do something like this. Now I'm just bringing up a model here. You know, before you start printing with concrete uh, full scale, you could do like a smaller print like this based on that 3D drawing I just mentioned. So what we have here is actually the first 3D printed home uh, in Europe. We call this the bot, the building on demand. Uh, We built this, we printed this in in 2017. And this is just to give you an idea of sort of how that looks. And then before you actually start printing with concrete, you can have it in your hand. Uh, You can see it uh, from the top here, how the wall designs look where 
Here, I think here's the uh, the bathroom of the building. Over here, we have a small kitchenette or something like that. So it just gives you an idea of how the building will look. This was also created by a 3D printer, but just in a very much smaller scale, right? Yeah. So the coding, the system of 3D printing is exactly the same from a small 3D printer to the construction. So if you're able to 3D print it uh, on a small scale, the construction, as long as you're within parameters, should work the same and deliver the same uh, product, right? Exactly. And that's what kind of fascinates me is that, you know, we have one file that we can use to print something like this, but then we can just take the same file, but use it on our very large printers. We just scale it up. Um, but it's essentially, it's the same code uh, that we use to, um, to move the machine around with. So when you're printing on a large scale, is that using only one material? Uh, or I guess what I struggle with is when you go to a 3D house, let's just use that as one example, right? In a house, we all know if you were doing that with manual labor, there would be a variety of different materials and products that are constructing that, right? Whether it's wood or glass or brick or stucco. But in 3D, we're talking about concrete only, or can you start the 3D, stop, then you introduce a different material, then you continue with the concrete? How does that how does that all work? Yeah, good, very good question, Michelle. Um, let me just take it to uh, the, a higher level first, and then I'll answer your question. So what we hear in the media and has, we have been hearing for a while is that, you know, you can 3D print a home in 24 hours at a fraction of the cost, like 10% of the cost of a regular home. Now, um, this is not the truth. It's simply a, <laughs> it's simply a blatant lie. I know it might sell printers, but the, those customers will be disappointed. We always try to be very transparent here at Cobot with, you know, setting the right expectations. Now, why did I mention this first? Well, because of the total home, the parts that are actually 3D printed with, let's say, concrete or mortar, that's only around one third of the, the total cost of that building. It's essentially only the, you can do the foundation, you can do the walls, and then we're also starting to do the, the slab. So, so basically the horizontal planes between uh, the, the different stories. But after that, you still have to have all the other trades and contractors come in. You have to do the roof. You have to do flooring, painting, insulation. All of that comes after. So, so in the material itself used for 3D printing is only, you could say, one, approximately one-third of the cost. That's just a high-level view. Now, Michelle, in terms of your question with regards to which materials you can use, we decided way back that we wanted to be open source. So we wanted our partners, our clients to do their own types of materials, to do their own mixing. And there were several reasons for this. Um, one is, you know, local climates, local humidity makes mixing concrete, you know, a very, you know, regional thing, right? It diff concrete is not just concrete. It differs due to, because of temperature, because of humidity, and all across the world, you will see different mixes being made because of these factors. So that's one, we wanted that local expertise to, to sort of be carried through when, when our partners were printing. And the other point is why we, we wanted to go this way with open source is that, you know, we, yeah, I'm glad to sell you a bag of sand or cement or gravel, which are the main components of, of, uh, of concrete in addition to water. However, shipping that from Denmark to the rest of the world is super expensive, right? Because it, you're basically talking tons of material. So uh, instead of doing that, you know, we thought, okay, it's going to be cheaper for our clients. It's going to be more adaptable for them to mix and source locally. And thirdly, you know, it's, it's just better for the environment that we don't ship sand and cement and gravel all across the world. So long story short, they, they can do their own materials. Like they can do mortar or they can do concrete. But by all means, like if they want to print with, uh, say, chocolate, I mean, by all means, they can do that. Come <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> down. <laughs> uh, so, Philip. On that material front, I've always had this hesitation about the commitment to going all concrete. Are you guys exploring? And, and the reasons really are because of the, not permanence, but difficult to uh, adjust. Yeah, to, if a family moves in and they need to grow or move or want to knock down a wall or something, it makes it much more difficult. 
Are you guys looking into other materials that could possibly be used instead of concrete? Yeah. So in, in general, we, you know, when you say we are, if we're looking into it, it's, it's actually us plus our partners. You know, we, we figured we couldn't be the best at everything within the construction industry. What we said from the beginning was, you know, we can be the best at providing the best 3D construction printers in the world. However, the other trades, uh, the other stakeholders, what they do, materials, uh, execution of the project, engineering, architecture, all of that, R&D, you know, that has existed. They, they have so much more knowledge and expertise in these areas that, you know, we cannot go in and excel. So in terms of materials, for instance, we're working with uh, Lafarge Holcim and CMEX. Those are some of the largest um, concrete and cement manufacturers in the world. And we're, I cannot speak exactly to what we're doing with them because it's, it's basically a business secret, but we're constant, yeah. constantly developing uh, you know, new and upgraded materials for, for printing. So uh, the unit itself, that the actual 3D printer, you <laughs> kind of joked about chocolate going into it. The unit itself, I assume, has broader capabilities. We're just not necessarily there yet of what other options could be used rather than just concrete. Yeah, uh, yes, 100%. Um, 100%. So the, the two um, components, again, that we provide, one being the, the printer itself and the other one being the, the feeding mechanism or what we call the batch plant for, for concrete, uh, basically allows for, for this. You could say the printer itself, that's basically just an advanced machine through which you put a hose and whatever comes through that hose will be extruded, right, and printed. But what you put in the batch plant, which can also be adjusted, well, I don't think we really understand yet what will happen with materials. I think, you know, in five, the next five, 10 years, we will see a lot of development with uh, hemp being uh, integrated in the mix, graphene to make it stronger. Graphene, yeah. You know, we've also seen um, some companies looking into uh, doing carbon injection into the concrete. So basically you would, you would basically blow or inject carbon into the concrete itself which one, you capture the carbon uh, inside. And secondly, you know, you reduce actually the amount of cement required and cement is a carbon center. So you have like a win-win situation. So I think we're going to see tons of more of these sort of uh, developments happening in the next years. And, and we will not know sort of where it will go. O only one thing is for sure. The materials will only get better, stronger and, and more sustainable. I have a question in the process itself when you're actually printing the house on site, you know, in my head, I'm, I'm struggling to see the process in my mind work. And, and I'm seeing, you know, for pumping concrete, usually you need forms, right. With which to put concrete into, cause it would fall out otherwise. So are you having to form everything up and then it pours it in, or is it a different mixture to where it's more like a quick dry or quick grab with, with much less slump that can continue to go around um, in its rotations. Can you explain that? Yeah, good, uh, good question, Jason. So uh, it, your answer is the second one that, okay. that you just said there. Basically, we have added to the concrete our magic recipe sure. developed with one of our partners, which basically makes the concrete stiff enough that, you know, it will set once once we print it, but also fluid enough that, you know, it can actually be extruded. Flow. Exactly. It can flow. And, and finding that balance between those two poles, that, that's basically the, the goal of our materials experts. Well, and I think, I think that has a lot like for some similarities and correct me if this is not right for people to understand. So when they order concrete currently, you have a cement mixer truck and it has a certain ratio of, you know, water to whatever and whatever based off of travel time and when it's going to be delivered and when it's going to set and that type of thing. So I'm assuming when you dump it into your uh, batch batch system, batch batch, ba batch plant, batching batch plant, plant, yeah, it's it's already got that formulation that it's rolling through so that it comes out at the right consistency. Is that is that correct? Yeah, so you can say there there are two options to go by, and and what our customers do is um, the one I'm going to describe here. On the site, you have this batching plant, and then you have your materials delivered to that site. Sure. So you add to the batching plant your gravel, your sand, your cement, and your water. That gives you your, your basic concrete mix. This concrete mix is, is similar to what you would get from a ready mix concrete, so the, the truck you described before. 
they're 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 similar. However, the truck, as you mentioned, they have to do tricks in order to make it as good as it was when they left the factory to when it gets on site. Right. But so that that's basically the concrete itself. But then what we do on site to make it you know three D printable is adding the the uh, defab solution or, or magic mix. Um, yeah, for to, sure. Exactly. Super cool. And then when they're doing that, when it's printing, so, and, and I'm, I'm used to slumping cause like from installing tile and stone, right? So the thin sets, the way they're mixed, the, the different properties, you have some that will hold what we call the fingers or like no slump and that kind of stuff. So the consistency, when it gets printed, are guys are having to smooth it or are you left with kind of, you know, the wiggly wall type, not, not that your walls are wiggly, but if it's coming out in a nozzle, it's in a circular pattern, I would imagine to a certain degree. So do they have to finish while that, while it's going through? Is that the idea? Yeah, good. Again, another good question. So no, um, you don't have to trowel the, the, the surface itself. Okay. Let me take you back a few years. So um, two or three years ago, every printer in the world, including ourselves, we had this round nozzle design, right? Which basically when, when extruded and, and cured, it gives you that, you could say, sausage look yep. uh, of, of different uh, lines on top of each other. Yep. Now, um, what we decided back then is to, to actually develop a, a new flap system for our extrude. So what you see here on the photo, I'm not sure if I can say this in a podcast because the listeners... Yeah, yeah but he'll, he'll post some. Post uh, okay. So what you see here is that, that home there uh, is built by our value partner, Perry. Perry is a German company uh, that are very good within Formworks, a uh, global company. And they're also our minority investor, actually. This is a home that they printed with, with uh, a Bot 2. That's our best-selling printer in Germany. And here, I believe they didn't print with uh, the flap system. So you can see the, you can see actually see each line uh, that this printer extruded the concrete in. Yeah. Some people like that look. Yeah, it's very unique. Yeah, right. I mean, it's, it's similar to some people like having, uh, you know, uh, bare walls, uh, naked, naked bricks or, or what you guys call it. Yeah. Um, so, so it, it demonstrates the technology. Um, however, some other people, if you, if you want it plastered, if you want it painted, you know, this uh, type of uh, sausage look makes it kind of hard uh, to do that. Right. So um, that, w- that was back then. So circling back to, you know, uh, our R&D department, best R&D department in the world, uh, hands down. What they developed was a, a new nozzle design, which gave us uh, the flaps on the side, which basically smoothens the, the print itself as it goes. Um, and I actually, I brought some samples here just to, to give you a, an idea. So this, this print, what I'm holding here um, is basically a small sample of concrete uh, from one of the first times that we used the nozzle with the flaps. So the, the wall smoothener, you could say. Okay, yeah. And, and what you can see here is it's, it's not a hundred percent smooth surface. You can yeah. still see the lines of each print, but guys, maybe, maybe you can tell me what you see, but it, it, it's definitely not that regular sausage look, right? To, to me, what it looks yeah. like if um, Demetrius and Michelle, I would, I would call that kind of like a board form look. You know what I mean? If you were to do planters in a landscape, I can yeah, take a picture kind. and I can send one to you if you want to, you know, put it, put it up on the page, but um, it kind of looks like board form to me. Like that's how it would come kind out. Of, yeah. 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 It almost looks like, I mean, it almost looks like brick. I mean, it's a thinner, yeah. thinner brick, but like a subway tile ish kind of look. Yeah. It's, it's the, yeah, I agree. And it's, the, it's the size almost of a brick, right. That I'm holding here. Yeah. Um, and, and also I just want to point out on it. Um, if you look from the front, you can see the different layers. However, if you look from the side, it's completely monolithic, right. It's, it's, it's one piece. So just to say, you know, this is, this is sturdy and strong, uh, despite how it looks on the front. Now, remember, this was a few years back, right? So now I'm just okay. um, pulling us into the future here with our new flap design. And here you can see how smooth oh, wow. this is. Yeah, yeah, so much cleaner. Uh, very clean, very easy to plaster, uh, very easy to paint afterwards. So probably ten percent of what you had before is what it looks yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. I can I for you guys here to see. Yeah, I think around ten percent. It's it, and it feels almost flat when when you're holding it. Yeah. Yeah, it would, it would make it a lot easier when you come in with finishes if you did want to apply some sort of um, finish to it instead of having the exposed concrete. Or if you painted it, it would be 
way easier <laughs> with that second version. Exactly. And and that's what, you know, the, the traits that come in after what they really like and where they can save some time because they don't have to travel or, uh, you know, spend a lot of time uh, making everything smooth uh, while, while plastering or, or painting. So, you know, some people, they still prefer the old design and we can, you know, you can swap the nozzles. It's, it's up to, uh, to the user. But if you want to go for something more traditional, then, then you have that option as well. So I have some questions about the, the printer itself. And it ties in, I think, to some of the economics. Um, you know, when I, when I think about it, I'm, I, you know, my focus is land acquisition, pro forma building analysis of whether a project's going to be profitable or not. So with the printer itself, your company manufactures the printer and then sells the printer, right? Like that's the product that your company Correct. has. Yep. Okay. So if you're a developer or a home builder, do you buy one printer and then you take that to a job site and you use it to your heart's content. And when that job site is done, then you put it in storage until your next print job or does it get sold back to your company? Like, how do you, if you're a developer, how many printers do you need? And what do you do with it when you're done or between jobs? You know, I, I imagine this is a pretty big apparatus. Um, so I'm, I'm having a hard time understanding how that works. And then secondly, I want to make sure we talk a little bit about just economics of the printer. I don't know if you're at liberty to say, hey, I'm you were going to sell me a home builder in California who builds single family and townhome communities, multifamily communities all across the state of California. How many printers do I need if I deliver a thousand closings, a thousand homes per year? Do I need a printer for every job or is it relatively easy to take one printer print for a site that's in Los Angeles and then, you know, next month bring that same printer down to San Diego and print in San Diego and, I'm trying to understand kind of that. And, and then again, if I'm purchasing that printer, how much am I paying? Is that a, is it a million dollars to buy a printer? Is it $500,000 to buy a printer? And I guess we'd have to talk in US dollars instead of, uh, uh, what do you Gross. have, the Crone? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, we, we do have the Crone. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> it was good, uh, good on you to know that. Very cool, uh, Michelle. So yeah, on, on your first question. So how do you use the printer? between projects. So, you know, the usual way it goes is that we will sell a printer. Let's say we ship it then. We've just shipped a printer to, to one of our customers in, in Arizona. So we ship that there. Then there'll be, you know, the initial week where we, one of our guys, so our CTO is actually currently over there. He will help install the printer, train the guys in, in operating it and finding the right mix of concrete locally, right? After that, you're basically good to go after the first week and you, you can start printing with that machine. However, like the learning curve is very steep. So don't expect you to finish your first home within 24 hours. Like some other people in the industry say, it's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, if, it, if, it, if it does happen, then hell has frozen over because, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's simply not possible. Right. So. Let's say then that this customer uh, will try and print for maybe a month or two and will finalize the, the uh, structure of that home. Then the other contractors come in and, sorry, the, the printer is disassembled. The other contractors come in and the house is finished by the conventional trades. What the customer then decides to do with that printer in the meanwhile, well, it would be cool if there's another project coming up, right? But otherwise, yes, you could store the printer in a warehouse until there's the next project, similar to you know, if you have a crane on, uh, on site, on a construction site, you would also store that away, right? It depends on the activity. Now, what we see or a lot of our customers do is that they would potentially collaborate with the local university. So they could actually give that printer or rent that printer out for a month or two. The local university students, and they, they love this technology, by the way, right? So they, they just go nuts. They dig right in. Um, they can test out the, the printer's capabilities, maybe test out different uh, materials, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, share that knowledge with the customer until the next, uh, you could say, project comes up. It's, it's, it's basically like any other, you know, building equipment that you have on a construction site. You, you just have to utilize it as much as possible uh, according to your, your uh, number of projects. It kind of reminds me of like... Um... 
the general engineer guys that are moving dirt and cutting pads and stuff like that, they don't always transfer trucks until they move to the next project. You know what I mean? Like they don't, they don't move them off site and then move them back to wherever they only move them from site to site, to site, to site. Um, and they hope to your point to just really be able to bounce from one spot to the next, to the next. Um, but it doesn't always work out that way. So I think they work it out with the, the partner to be able to leave them on site until they have to move them. Well, exactly. So the printer, and, like if you were, if you were developing a subdivision of homes, right. Where you had, you know, maybe it's 25 single family detached homes and you've got 25 different lots throughout a project. So is it printer, is it on rollers so that you can take it, you can, you can print on one lot then you simply roll the printer to the next lot, you print on that lot, or are you having to dismantle the entire printer and then move it to the next lot, reassemble the printer, print, disassemble, move it to the next lot? And how does that ease of going from lot to lot in a community development work? Yeah, so as it is right now, you would have to disassemble and then assemble it again. However, we have made quite a streamlined process of doing so. So I would say if you have, you basically use one of those flatbed trucks where you have, you have all your trusses on the X, Y, and Z axis. Uh, these metal trusses you disassemble using either a telehandler or a crane, depending on the size, load it onto the truck and then transport it to the next lot, assemble it again. Uh, if you have a good team uh, that has done this before, I would say you could do it within one working day, disassembly and assembly. What we're doing on, on the next printer that we have coming up next year, that will actually be on rails in the Y-axis. There you go. Very cool. Con yeah, exactly. It's a very cool concept. So essentially, you, you basically have the, the rails, you have the printer moving on those rails. So you, you would not have to disassemble it. You would just have to extend the rails in length, making it much easier. However, being able to disassemble and assemble the printer in one working day is also, you know, quite good right now. I don't want to lose this one, but on what Michelle was getting at on the cost portion of that, I don't know how much you can get into it, but what does that cost look like? And maybe a comparison of, as opposed to having trades come in and do all of the framing for a building, uh, what does this look like? What is your, your cost benefit um, going to the 3D printing? Well, yeah. maybe more maybe more simply asked, just what is the cost of a printer? <laughs> <laughs> Good. Now, um, there are different ways you can answer this because the the cost itself depends on how many modules you have in each dimension. So you can either go very tall or wide or long. Um, but I'm just going to give you like a an idea of sort of a, a regular sized, almost a, a cube or a rectangle. Um, so this printer that I'm mentioning here is around uh, $450,000. This is the printer itself. This is not without all the add-ons, such as the batching plant uh, that actually feeds the concrete. So you would need to you know, do an additional investment to actually have the turnkey solution. But here you can actually get the printer and, and you can basically get started if you get the other equipment for the materials yourself. So for $450,000, what you get is a printable area. So this is not the size of the printer itself, but what, what you can actually do, uh, what the final output of that uh, looks like. Here you get around 23 feet in width, uh, 48 feet in length, and around 10 feet in height. Cool. It's not huge, right? But the thing is, you know, our printers are modular. So we can do a very, very small setup let's say a university, they just want to test out the technology and they want to test out the materials. Then we do a, a printer that can print like a few feet by a few feet by a few feet, right? Whereas if you want to print a home, of course, you would need a much larger setup. Well, that's easy. You just add additional modules uh, of, of these trusses, which are uh, bolted together, which gives you additional height in, in all three dimensions. And of course, the you could say the price follows the number of modules that that you purchase. It's actually not that expensive. Yeah, it was going like to say. If I think about it, that kind of surprised me. I was I was not thinking it would be, you know, quote unquote, that low. Something completely palatable. Thanks, Jason, uh, and I'm happy to sell you one. Right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have my number. 
Um, but but you could say, you know, that's that's for the smaller setup. You're not going to be able to print a full house with that, but it will get you sure. started with the technology. And and this is something our customers and, and our partners find very attractive is that they can start off with something quite small. Uh, yeah. they, they can basically, and then later on, they can, you know, scale up. So you, yeah. you actually get to crawl before you walk, uh, yeah, before scalable. you run. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, uh, this is the cost of the the printer itself, and and that yeah. gives you the walls. You also have to, you know, the, then you have the materials and the other trades coming in afterwards. But the the thing is, when you with all equipment, right? When you when you invest in something like this, it's just important to utilize as uh, at, as much as possible to get the cost per project down, right? Yeah, for sure. So, how much lifeline, like the one printer? Are you are you finding that that a printer can be in existence for years on end? I mean, is there a life cycle of a printer? Is there, a, you know, after after a year, does it putter out or do these things, you know, again, I'm think, thinking as a developer. So if I purchase this printer and I choose to move it around from all my various job sites, you know, my that 400,000, I think is going to go a really, really long way theoretically, right? I can use that over the next five years, 10 years. Yeah. Um, so the thing is, right? We 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 commercialized our the, this product two years ago in 2019. So we've we've sold more than 30 printers now. But the first printer was shipped two years ago. So we we don't really know yet. What I can tell you is that we expect them to have a lifespan of let's say around 10 years. Okay. Uh, we have a one year warranty where we give you know full support if if anything should go uh, wrong with the machine, we come and fix it. First, we try remotely or we go on site, but we're, we expect around 10 years. You usually get a lot of, you know, use out of this machine. We have, you know, very good electronics. Uh, we produce it here in Denmark. We get the steel uh, also here from Denmark. Uh, and, and we have a very strict quality control in, in down in our production. We have a German in part. So he's leading our production uh, department. So, you know, it's, it's, it's good quality essentially. <laughs> yeah. Now, we've talked quite glowingly so far about the concept and the the product. What would you say is sort of a pain point or um, the most difficult part about 3D printing? Yeah, um, hand, very easy to answer. Hands down, it's it's the material itself. It's, it's mixing the concrete or the mortar. You know, you can have the best 3D construction printer in the world, which is called a BOT2. It's made by a company called Cobot. Um, but <laughs> just FYI, no, um, uh, but if, if, if your material, uh, is not good, then your output will not be good. So it, it, these are the two most important factors. And it, like, if one is not in order, then the whole, that's the weakest link, right? So in material that mixing concrete is, is really, a, it's an art and a science, you know, concrete has existed for thousands of years. If you go to Rome, you still have structures standing there, the Pantheon in Rome, uh, all made out of, of concrete hundreds, hundreds of years ago. But today, you know, you have local materials, you have the local humidity, local temperature. Um, maybe it's super hot, like in, in Arizona, it could be super cold. Like the, the clients we have in, in Canada, they'll be printing you know, up north in northern Canada, where it gets super cold, right? Freezing minus 50 Celsius. Adapting the material to that is requires, you know, uh, extensive experience, uh, which is why we also provide a lot of, you know, training to actually ensure that our clients know how to, to do that. How many other companies are doing what you do? I mean, you have claimed that you have the best printer and I'm not going to refute that, but how many other groups <laughs> exist in the world that are, that you're competing with, that Cobot is competing with in, in this industry to sell 3D printers for construction? I would say there are probably at least 30 companies worldwide that are, you know, within the 3D construction space. And maybe that's even a low number because we see so many companies popping up these years. Uh, and, and you can probably divide those into two groups, one being those that only sell the technology, which is what we do, and then other companies, uh, and I won't mention any names, but those that do full end-to-end projects, right? So they have basically vertically integrated. Uh, they execute the projects themselves. They, they perhaps do their own architecture and materials and, and R&D. 
Um, and those are sort of the two different models that exist. And we, we sell only the technology because we think, you know, we cannot be best, uh, we cannot be smarter than all of the other stakeholders in this industry yeah. that have been here for so long and have so much more experience, for instance, within, you know, materials or execution of projects. It would almost be arrogant of us to say, hey, we're a four-year-old company and, and we know how to do better than you guys. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, so just one one more question for me. Uh, the material component you said is is incredibly important and impacts your output. Earlier in the podcast, you talked about there being a, a kind of a secret sauce. Um, that secret sauce is that part of what you're selling, or where does that come from? How do you get that? You get that from uh, from us, and and mm-hmm. we've okay. developed this with together with our partners. Okay, so that's part of what you're selling. That's part of what we're selling. And, and in terms of the materials for creating the, the concrete, that's actually the only part that we're distributing here from Denmark. Everything else, everything else, we, we um, encourage our partners to source locally. You know, and we, we, we can sort of justify selling this 3D printable mix, uh, this, this uh, magic mix, because it's only 1% of the total weight of concrete. So it's, it's not too bad for the environment to ship. Uh, and it basically makes the product much more suitable for the purpose than if you don't add it. Mm-hmm. But here's what I was thinking. Plumbing and electrical and walls, right? Like it all runs through the walls. So I'm assuming when these guys are printing the house, it's like you get to a certain height and layer, then they run whatever they need to. And then it prints over the top of that, right? Kind of just buries it in the, in the process and the layers. Uh, Jason, other, other contractors, they, they love it. They love this new technology. Why? Because it, it makes their job easier. They, let's say we print, you know, um, two feet or something like that, or three feet off the wall. Then we stop for the daily electricians will come in and they will do the wiring or they will do the plumbing. Yeah. And, and also it, that's one part is they, they can sort of cooperate uh, or collaborate with uh, build as we go along with the printer. Uh, the other part is that we, we make or the technology makes it easier for them to come in. Let's, let me give you an example here. For instance, electric, uh, electrical sockets for, mm-hmm. for you put in the walls. Some, like before, you would have to, with conventional construction, you would have to carve that out and then put in the socket. Yep. We think that's a waste of good material, right? So right. essentially, when we print, that's negative space. That's, that's never printed. So you basically imagine the, the nozzle goes along. And here, come, here it knows, it comes to a point where it knows uh, a socket is supposed to be. Then it just stops, it lifts, and then moves um, to the other side after a so few So you literally just walk in and pop in these sockets in. You just pop it in. And it's oh. the same, like, that. that's a small example. Let's say we're talking windows or doors uh, or, or uh, for holes for, for um, plumbing, et cetera. Then it becomes, like, a really strong, you know, but not only for, for sustainability, but also for, for cost and time saved, essentially, for the other trades. Yeah. From an architectural standpoint, um, typically you have your conceptual architectural drawings. And then once those are approved, you then go into construction drawings, right? For the architectural plans. So the construction, in in this case, when you know that you are going to use a 3D printer to develop and build your your house, is it your team in-house, Philip, that is really doing the construction drawings or are there certain architects that exist in the world that are specifically focused on creating construction documents um, that include electrical, mechanical, plumbing, um, as well as the, as well as the, the building documents, uh, you know, who does that? Cause I, you know, Demetrius, I don't think you could just call up, I don't want to call any architectural firms up, but think of the think of the main ones in Orange County, right? I don't think you could just call them up and be like, "Hey, we're going to do a we're going to do a three D house here. We'll make sure the construction documents include that, right?" Like that's a very specialized skill set, I would imagine. Yeah, are there any limitations to a three D printer that I need to be aware of when I'm designing a house? Is there any special consideration that I need to take to do three D printing? We, you could say whatever you decide to print within the printable area or the PA, as we call it, should be more or less feasible because it's just 
the machine, you tell, you know, wh where to print it, it figures out which direction to go in order to actually make sure that the final structure looks as intended. But however, there are a few points to note. For instance, you cannot go, let's say more than, it cannot be angled uh, more than 20 to 25 degrees. So you, you cannot have a wall that slants too much because the, the concrete itself would, would simply collapse under its own weight. That also, of course, means you, you cannot print into uh, you know, thin air. There, there has to be a layer beneath it, right? So let, let me give you an example, right? Um, let's say that you're printing, uh, you're printing a wall and it has done uh, the negative space where a door will be, right? So in that part, it hasn't printed exactly. So now you get to the top of that door and you need, you need to sort of have the upper layer in order to continue uh, with the bill, let's say you're doing a two-story uh, home. So here you have to uh, have a guy uh, come in and place on a, a lintel, so some sort of uh, board, which you place, and then you have the 3D printer print on top of that mm -hmm. to, to make Got sure it. it keeps going, right? Cool. Uh, so for you, you, you really reduce the, the amount of manual labor, but for some parts of it, because if it, it's a new technology, you would have to have uh, you know, a guy or two come in and, and then do these small adjustments. Have to fight gravity. <laughs> yeah, to fight gravity. Yeah. But our, like, maybe in 10 years, we'll have a machine that fights gravity. I don't know. <laughs> so the actual design process doesn't necessarily change when you are taking on 3D printed buildings. Yes, but, but um, our mindset is, is actually a bit different. So we... Refigured, you know, let's you shouldn't ask uh, a 3D printer to replicate the types of structures that already exist. Instead, you should, the, the question should be how can we utilize this fantastic technology to create something completely new, which is stronger, which is quicker to print, which is more sustainable. That's also, also what we tell our clients don't use this to, to replicate what you're already doing, let's do something new. Uh, which is more beautiful and, and cheaper and, and stronger. But the process is the same, right? More or less, we, there's a person who has done the drawings. Then she would take those drawings to, let's say, our, our crew here, our, our good architects, which will then convert it into um, a 3D printable model. They will sit together and discuss, you know, okay, why is this wall totally uh, flat? Why don't we try to, to make some curves instead? Or here you might want to think about the if this corner is 3D printable or not. Like suggestions and idea like ideas like that, and also making sure that you know you have your carve outs for doors and windows, et cetera, et cetera. Electrical, plumbing, all that stuff. HVAC, exactly right. So that that's around like a, a week of or maybe two weeks where they would be sitting together. Uh, once they're done, then they take those drawings and that file to a, a structural engineer, local structural engineer, then looks at it, does uh, the, the calculations, and, and then they sign it off. And when it's signed off, it's, it's, it's basically good to go. You can 3D print it, and it's permitted to, to live in. Cool. Thank That's you great. so much, Philip. Uh, this is fantastic conversation. Um, for people that want to find out more about Cobod and uh, follow along with you, what would be the best place to do so? We have a uh, few area or a few places where they can follow us. One, please go uh, to cobod.com, C-O-B-O-D.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn, uh, Cobot International, uh, on Instagram. Uh, I think we got on Twitter a few days ago. Uh, so we're around there and and basically, you know, we get mentioned a lot in the media um, because, you know, we have printers deployed uh, in six continents all around the globe. Um, most of the competition, you know, they haven't done more than a few projects. We're actually, we have deployed 30 printers worldwide, right? Um, so there should be a project coming up uh, near you, basically, which you, which you can follow <laughs> along with. All right. Uh, so thank you again, Philip. Thank you, Jason, Michelle. Thank you to the listeners for listening. And we'll talk again on the next one. Thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. That's all for this episode. But keep listening for a sneak peek of our next episode. Thanks again for listening. 
Spaces is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. If you enjoy our show, you can support us in three simple ways for free. You can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcast app if it allows you to. Tell a friend and follow us on social media. But before you go, next time on Spaces Podcasts. There's a funny thing that happens with these buildings, and that's that the wood is exposed. And when you, <laughs> it, what that means is that, you know, with a steel or concrete building, you might, you, your mechanical systems, your electrical system, you're here to cover all that stuff up with a drop ceiling or drywall or whatever. And so often from a design process point of view, you know, you can get pretty far down the road before you get you bring on the consultants because you feel like, well, they'll find a home for their, you know, their components, the ductwork. <laughs> and and that obviously isn't a great system. Like they, they should always come in early, but in, yeah. in mass timber, you have to bring people in early, all these other aspects of the design, because you're going to see that ductwork if you're not careful and you're going to see that electrical if you're not careful. And so it's a really much more integrated design process than the traditional process. What's funny for us as a practice is we've always worked in this highly integrated way and didn't quite appreciate when clients started asking us, do you work in an integrated de- design process? <laughs> and, and we were like, well, w- what else would you do? Right? Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's kind of because we work in this material where you have no choice but to work that way. And that's where the great joy comes from in the process. Thanks for spending time with us. Talk soon. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.